Did everybody get what they wanted for Christmas? I'm so sorry. You need nothing? Did you get a few things that you wanted for Christmas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wished for a uh, getting sick, and I got sick. So that was my gift. And uh, so I just, uh, I just wanted, I say that just to let you know that I, there may be some sniffles and coughs and, and pauses where I may fall asleep. Um, and, uh, or it may just be an excuse because I lost my way somewhere in the message and I'm just blaming it on being sick. But um, anyways, uh, well, we are uh, rolling into chapter 7 here in 1 Corinthians. And just when you thought it was safe to come back to church after all that sex talk last week from Nick, well, sorry, it's uh, Paul and the Corinthians, they weren't quite finished yet. And so there's no dodging it. We don't dodge these things. Uh, he didn't, and, and we're not. And so there will be some talk about sex again this morning. Now, I just want to let you know, I did listen to the message again this week. And um, I think, from last week, I think Nick used the word 72 times in, in his message. Um, just saying, but uh, no, not really. <laughs> but obviously quite a bit. But I do want to give you fair warning. I will probably... Use the word just as much in this message, if not more. So, um, but if you weren't here last week and you didn't have a chance to hear the message, I want to encourage you to go to our website. And uh, Nick did such a great job on this a tough subject. And so I want to just encourage you to, to go there and to listen to the message. And I think you'll find it very helpful, um, very fruitful for you. All right. Um, 1 Corinthians 7. So what we find here as we kind of travel into this chapter here is Paul is in the midst of addressing all this confusion that is going on this, in this church in Corinth. And he couldn't get away from it. He had heard some reports, and then he got this letter, and so he had to deal with it. Last week, was, uh, he was warning about the wrong view of sex and its consequences. And then this week, via many questions that came from the church, from that letter, he helps us move from an unhealthy view of sex to a healthy view of sex, And then he continues with other questions dealing with marriage and divorce and being single and what the Corinthians are supposed to do with this new redeemed life. They, they're believers in this new place and all this confusing information is around. So Paul's going to try to help walk them through this. Um, in all of this, you do have to appreciate how Frank Paul, how Frank Paul, how Paul is Frank. <laughs> well, I think we're going to rename the apostle, okay? Um, and it can be a little uncomfortable. And as we talk and walk through some of the, these subjects. But, you know, I was thinking about this, and it kind of reminded me of uh, our premarital counseling that Aaron and I do for so many different uh, uh, young uh, people who are getting ready to get married. And, uh, you know, they each get a book, and we walk through this, but, but every single one of them know that at the end of the book is the talk. It's the last chapter on intimacy and sex. And so I'm sure that when the guys get the book, they go right to the back and kind of see what are we going to talk about. But uh, it's there, and they know that eventually at some time um, that we're going to talk about this because it's such an important part of becoming one and being married. But these couples, they're all over the place, um, you know, in this area and what they think, and um, some are very anxious and um, about talking about it or, or getting to this place. Um, some people are like, hey, can we just skip the last chapter because I'm ready to go? And uh, uh, matter of fact, I just want to move the wedding date up so we can uh, take care of this. But we have couples that have come from tough situations. And some that have, um, you know, been married before perhaps. Or some that have had uh, premarital sex and others that have never had sex. And um, we're pretty frank about our discussions because it's important in our talks. They can ask us anything they want and they do. And usually um, Aaron takes the gals and I take the guys and we just talk about these issues because it's, it's so uh, important and, and for them to understand. The most important thing for us to help them is for them to have a right perspective on sex, okay? The depth of it, the beauty of it, the fullness of it, the purpose of it, what God has designed. It's a, a beautiful thing. And as we'll see how the world has corrupted this. But that's our, our main focus and our main job is to help these couples um, see what is really meant here. And so in chapter 7, we've now come to this, this major division in the great letter here in 1 Corinthians. In the first six chapters, Paul was confronting the Corinthians about 
some of the things that were going on there, the compromises that they were making, issues in the church. Once again, he had gotten a report. The report was not good. It definitely was somewhere around a D minus. And, uh, and, and he had heard all things. So he's, he was busy trying to help them understand and correct these things. Um, if you remember, he did this, um, once again, based on this report. And then he moved from there. And so as we begin in chapter 7 here, he's answering a series of questions that they had asked via this letter that they had received. Um, we don't have the specific questions uh, in this chapter, but it's pretty easy to deduce what they were. And uh, it's obvious that this church was really confused and wandering off into some pretty weird teachings. And so, uh, once again, they had questions, and they wanted to figure this out. And basically, Paul says, I've said what I've needed to say. I've addressed um, these issues that I heard about here. And now, what I'm going to do, I'm going to answer your questions. And then so several times in through uh, this book and in chapter 7, he begins to answer the questions from Corinthians. And he uses a phrase, now concerning, which tells us that he's, a, he's answering. Now concerning this thing that you um, asked me about. And um, that's six or seven times through Corinthians we find that, and he begins to answer those questions. All right, so let's go ahead and walk through this, this advice that Paul gives, the instructions um, to these questions basically walking from an unhealthy view of sex to a healthy, right, and good view. And then the questions about marriage and divorce and being single. So we're going to begin by reading uh, a section of the Scriptures. Uh, In your pew Bible is page uh, 955, verses 1 through 5. That's where we're going to begin. Give you just a second to get there. It says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right. So we need to remember here that Paul is answering a question from the Corinthians. And uh, if you look here at at verse 1, we can look at verse, we can pretty much figure out what that question uh, the Corinthians were asking Paul. Uh, It's a question that it's very relevant for us here in our culture. So if we take a look at this verse, Paul writes this. Quote, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, in our ESV Bible, just like uh, a section last week that Nick talked about, there's quotations of Mark uh, around it is good for a man not to have sexual relations uh, with a woman. And uh, we'll find out why that is in just a second. Um, It's basically them asking a question. But the Corinthians have asked Paul whether or not Christians simply should have sex. Because evidently, there were some people in the Corinthian church who decided and believed and claimed and taught that uh, it was more spiritual not to have sex. And uh, Nick, once again, alluded to this, the ascetics or asceticism, where um, people believe that the way to be really, really spiritual is to completely separate yourself and, uh, and deny anything the physical body finds pleasurable. And so this had creeped into this church And uh, so they were talking and teaching, hey, you know, we're just going to be a church and we're just not going to have sex here. And uh, before you can write them off as being completely out of their minds, okay, let's think a little bit for a minute about why they would take that view. You may remember from chapter 6 that Corinth was, was polluted, right, with sexual immorality, sexual promiscuity, so many things going on. But also, let's remember this, uh, who the Corinthian church was and who, what it consisted of. Who was actually in that church? These are people who lived their entire lives outside of anything remotely like Christianity. It's, it's, it's all new. They, 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 they really didn't know it. And so their entire lives is completely out of that world and in this, this, this world that is, is, is a cesspool. And then when many of them got married... Uh, the gospel message has not come to Corinth yet, so they didn't hear that or understand it. Sexual immorality was rampant and a major part of idol worship in Corinth. 
Uh, we know that. We touched on that last week because Paul uh, was telling them that they should never engage in that type of idolatrous sex. And so those who were converted to Christianity had questions about the role that sexuality and marriage had in their Christian lives. What is this really supposed to be like? And so you have in this church, evidently there's a group of Christians there who looked at this, the, the sexual immorality and the promiscuity in their culture, and they said, you know what? We've got to be different. We've got to be set apart. We've got to be pure. And so in order to purify ourselves from all of that, the safest way for us to do that is just to avoid sex altogether. So we're just not going to have it. And they started teaching that quote, and here it is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So the Corinthians then, they write Paul, and because they're not 100% sure about this, and they ask if that's right. Did we get this right? Is it best for us not to have sex at all? Should Christians never have it? And I hope you can see uh, that this chapter is relevant for us in our culture today. We do live in a culture, you cannot deny it, that is very similar to Corinth in, in many ways when it comes to this area. Our culture basically says, have it anytime you want, any way you want it, with anybody you want. And we know that's, that's true. Now, some of us, we, we do our best to kind of maybe isolate ourselves sometimes from those messages, but, you know, read a book, go to a movie, go to class, anywhere around, it's, it's in billboards, wherever it is, the information is there. But not only that, on the other end of the spectrum here are some people, um, often, sometimes the church, religious people in the church world, whose reaction against all this um, sexual immorality is to treat and to frame sex like it's a bad thing, okay? And for many, many Christians, when um, you read about it in your Bible, and depending on how you've been brought up, and you're, you're, you're colored, and I'm not supposed to talk about this. I can't think about it. Um, and it becomes, it's a bad, it's wrong, it's sinful. Um, and then it's hard to turn that corner, especially, you know, even working with our, our once again, our young couples, you know, they're, they're, they're just like, okay, you know, I really like this guy, I really like this girl. She's hot, he's hot, you know. And, but I've been told that this, you know, that sex is bad, it's wrong. It's like, I can't even go there, or, you know, I... I and so there's this confusion, there's this distorted view um, of it. And so they, then, they, we, then they get married and we say, okay, phew, have as much sex as you want, go for it, uh, in this marriage relationship. And so sometimes that's difficult. And so the question is, is, is that the biblical view? Is that the biblical view? As Christians, should our reaction to all the sexual immorality in our culture be that we view sex as bad and wrong and shameful? Well, chapter 7 here, um, Paul answers to that question. And so Paul thinks it's very important for us to think very carefully about a Christian view of sex because he spends a lot of time answering this question from a lot of different angles in this chapter. So let's look at Paul's pretty much basically his, his first answer here in verses 2 through 5. Remember, the Corinthians have asked this, okay? Is it best for Christians to never have sex at all? And here's Paul's. Um, here's his, his basic answer. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. It means you should get married, right? The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Now, I want to stop there. I don't like that word. Conjugal. I mean, it's just, doesn't it just sound not very warm? You know, hey, I want you Yep, going to go take care of my conjugal rights. You know, I mean, it just doesn't sound right. Okay, so New Living Translation gives a little bit, uh, a little bit easier uh, way to, to read it and understand it. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. Isn't that a little bit nicer than conjugal? I like that. So, as we continue on, for the wife does not have authority over his own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at five different statements of advice. And uh, we're going to give you your, your first one here in just a second. And, um, and before we continue on, I just wanted to pray. 
Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that Paul uh, tackles these subjects. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the church in Corinth that uh, because of their um, confusion and wanting to do the right thing, because uh, they wanted to be taught and because they wanted to do it, they asked questions of Paul. And through that process, Lord, um, we get to read your word and understand what uh, you have for us in this area of sex. So, Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, advice statement number one. Uh, advice to married people regarding sex. Here's the answer. Do not deprive each other. Just do it. Okay? Very simple. Yes. I know it sounds like a Nike commercial, but, um, but that is it. It's, it's very simple and very straightforward, and so there's not really any beating around the bush here. So you understand what Paul just said, though, here, don't you? You, you? Paul said that, how do we protect himself? The way to protect yourself against, in a marriage, sexual immorality, or is not having, or not by avoiding sex altogether, the way to protect yourself against sexual immorality is by getting married and then having sex with your spouse often. And that's the answer. It's exactly what this verse says. Starting in verse 2, with, uh, follow along with me. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So that's basically saying that if we can, uh, we should get married. And we're going to talk about singles and situations and, and things like that as we move on through uh, this message here. But uh, starting in verse 2, that's what uh, it says. God intends for marriage to help protect us against sexual immorality. How? Verses 3 and 4. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So God intends for you to meet your spouse's needs, and even more specifically, look at verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So this is built-in protection for a marriage. God intends for you to meet your spouse's needs often enough that you protect them from uh, temptation of looking at other things or going elsewhere. Um, So let's put this all together and we can say that the way that God intends for marriage to help protect against Sexual immorality is this, that God intends for married couples to have sex often. And if any of you married people want to shout amen right now, go for it. Okay? So, it's a good thing. I'm just going to let that just kind of hang there for a second. Excuse me. But in all seriousness, um, the biblical view... The God view, the wonderful view of sex is that sex within marriage is good and it's right and it's desirable. In fact, that it's commanded. It's commanded. But I thought God was approved. I thought this whole area that we're not supposed to talk about or or reach. No. God is the one who invented sex and he wants us to enjoy it because there is a beautiful story uh, when a married couple, couple comes together and has relations. Uh, the story is not just the act itself, but the gospel, even in a certain way, and we'll, we'll dive into this just a little bit, it kind of invades that area as a married couple. So uh, we'll see that in just a moment. But here's something else. Something I want us to realize that um, what this truth also teaches us about God. And it's something that we might miss here. Sometimes... Uh, when, when you go through some scripture, oftentimes there's this, that, that in-your-face part of what we understand. And then there's some layers that kind of come in that speak of different principles that uh, God is also teaching within um, that section of scripture. Um, when God uses sex within marriage to help protect us from sexual immorality, um, think about what that is teaching about God. I'm not going to ask you to, to figure this out, but... It teaches us this. It teaches that God refuses to surrender any part of his creation to sin. God refuses to say, well, you know what? Um, 
man, sin has totally messed up this area. It's so bad. I'm just going to give it over to the world. I'm just going to give it up. I meant it for good, but I think I lost that battle, so I'm just, I'm just going to leave it out there. No, God doesn't lose any battles. He, he's not in that business. God's not in the business of surrendering the things that, that he has created. God is in the business of redeeming the things that he has created in this fallen world. And did, So did you hear that? God is in the business of redeeming the things that he has created. So we remember, God is the one who created sex. In the very beginning, God created Adam and Eve as male and female, and he told them to go be fruitful and to multiply. So it was God's idea. It was not the world's. It belongs to God, not the world's. And that means that in God's economy, in the right circumstances, that means that sex is good because everything God created was good. So when sin came in and invaded this world and it twisted and it, and it perverted and polluted it, it was twisting and perverting and polluting something that God originally created as good. But God isn't willing to let sin and sexual immorality have the last say over his creation. No. He comes back and he says this. No, what I made was good, and it is still good. And you know what? I am going to use that which is good. I'm going to, in this case, sex within marriage to battle against sin. He refuses to surrender this to the culture and to the world. It belongs to him, so he reclaims it, and he redeems it. And here's this thing, and I want you to hear this too. This truth of reclaiming and redemption, it goes way beyond the topic of sex. God is reclaiming and redeeming everything that is his. And everything is his. He refuses to surrender any of it. And what does that mean? That means you and that means me. And that's the business that he is in. This Christmas we celebrated and uh, the theme of our service when love risks. It was God's, uh, a picture of God's rescue mission coming to redeem mankind to himself um, by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And so for every one of us in here, in our lives, whether we have accepted Christ or not, there's, there's different levels of redemption that are going on our lives. We could use the word sanctification as, as a word there, but we, um, as part of this process. But there's an initial redemption of uh, when he comes out, he saves us. He sent a son who died on the cross for us. We recognize that. And by believing that and recognizing that and giving ourselves to him, accepting that sacrifice, we're redeemed. We've been bought with a price. And then God doesn't stop there. The parts of our lives that uh, we've struggled with or parts of our lives that were broken, he is redeeming and replenishing and refilling and nourishing and bringing it about in his lives. That's what our God does. So uh, this redemption, it's beautiful, and it one day will be complete. Now, when Paul also recognizes, um, but here, then Paul also recognizes that um, this part doesn't come, what he has said so far, doesn't come close to answering questions. As a matter of fact, it brings out a lot, a lot of other questions that he asks about Christians and sex and marriage and singleness. Uh, yes, you're supposed to have it in marriage, but what if you don't want to get married? Do you have to get married now? What if you're a widow? What if you're engaged? What if you're married to a non-Christian? What if you became a Christian after you got married? What if you're divorced? So Paul, so Paul spends the rest of chapter 7, and he begins answering all these different questions. I won't be able to get to all of them, but we'll move through as many as we can. So let's go ahead and pick it up, verses 7 through 9 here. Uh, uh, and um, actually, I'll start reading verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, and uh, I wish that all were as myself am, but each of you, excuse me, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, to understand it a little bit better, the New Living Translation says it this way in verse 7. But I wish everyone were single just as I am, Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single 
as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So we're going to come across our second statement here, or second advice statement. And um, it has to do um, with, with being single. And I want to be sensitive here because um, we have, obviously, we have married people and single people in this audience. And, and it's all over the gamut. Obviously, our high schoolers are single pretty much, right? Yeah, single? Okay. A lot of our college students are, uh, uh, are single. And we have different people in different stages of life. And we understand that people get married at different stages. Um, they could get married just... Um, out of high school, they get married. Um, parents, I didn't advise that for your kids, just want to let you know. Um, they can get um, married out of college or while they're in college or after college, under 30s or 40s or 50s. Um, and so it's, it's all over the place. And a person may be single because their marriage didn't work out and, and, there's, and there's a lot of hurt and things like that. And so you're listening to this message and you're going, okay, well, that sounds, that's, you know, that's not for me. But um, Paul has an answer for everybody here. So advice to the single people who desire to get married. And so uh, this probably fits most people who are single. They want to get married. Go ahead and get married if you can. Once again, as God's timing allows. Uh, he is the one that directs that. He's the one that helps us get to that place. Sometimes we don't like his timetable, um, but it, it indeed is his. And so what he's saying here is just as it is not more spiritual for a married couple to deprive themselves of the sexual relationship with each other, it is not more spiritual for a single person to remain single just so they can be like the holy Christian and be the best Christian in the world. And I figured if I'm not married, then I can do all things for God and I can be a good Christian. Um, now, that can be true to a point, right? Paul here mentions that certain individuals are given the gift, the gift of singleness and are able to control their sexual desires, okay? For these people, Paul says... Um, it is better for them to stay unmarried just as, him, as himself is. Okay, that's one, one class. He presses into this in verses 32 and 38 at the end of the chapter where he explains how single can be, the things that you can do um, while being single and the help um, or the, the things when you're not married, the possibilities of what you can do. But he very specifically talks about this being a gift. Okay. And so if you're single here and you're not married, other than high schoolers, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have that gift, okay? Uh, you know, and God reveals to you um, through process and through things of whether or not you have that gift itself. And so Paul is trying to instruct, he's trying to say, you know, it'd be neat if we could do this because we could just go after the kingdom of God with no encumbrances whatsoever. But he also realizes that, no, it's a gift. And that most people, um, their giftedness is not this. He goes on and says, but if a single person decides that they are going to live a celibate lifestyle simply as a, a way that, to uh, gain spiritual maturity, and that decision to stay single then creates in them an unhealthy amount of, let's just say, lust, okay? Um, then it's probably better to marry, and you probably don't have the gift of singleness. So, um, but being single, it's a season of time. We find that in verse 17 at the end of the message where it talks about um, of, of growing where you are planted, so to speak. Where are you in your station of life? Well, don't wait for that next station. Do what God wants you to do right now, and you have the freedom to do it. Uh, many of you here know um, Emily Moss, right? Anybody here know Emily Moss? Okay, a lot of you do. And she was uh, a gal. Uh, she got baptized here right before she took off to California, or was that before the Mexico trip? I don't remember which one. Or the um, uh, Europe trip. Anyways, uh, she is single, and, um, and she is adventurous and living life as a single um, and she went to Europe, and she took a trek um, across uh, Europe to, and ended up in Spain and having great conversations um, with people and about God and about the Lord with them. And then she's taken off now. She's in California and actually in San Diego where we lived, hanging out with uh, um, our best friends there and just, li you know, living a, a single life of, 
of getting embedded in another Christian community, talking about the Lord. And so if she was married, she would not have that opportunity to do that. She really, she really wouldn't. Now, in a certain circumstance, perhaps, but what she's been able to do, and so um, just want you to understand that, that, that there are stations of life. Take advantage of where you are at that time because that station changes. And when that station changes, you, you really usually can't go back to what that, that, and do the things that you could do at that time. Okay. Now, Paul turns his attention to followers of Christ who are married to followers of Christ. So now we've, we've shifted. So it's Christians who are married to Christians. 1 Corinthians uh, 7, 10 through 11. To the married, I give this charge or this command, not I, but the Lord. And so he says that because this is what Jesus has talked about this before. Um, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And so number third, our third piece of advice here, advice to, the, advice to those in Christian marriages. Simply stay married. Stay married. First off, remember this context. And uh, once again, I want to, I, I understand um, that in an audience this large, that we do have people that um, are either, can be separated, um, divorced, remarried, um, all those different areas. And so, but we are going to move through these scriptures as they are said to us, and we're going to answer and look at some of those questions. First off, we want to remember the context again. Um, although we use this verse about divorce often when, when we're talking to people about it, um, Paul is answering a question Basically, he's deduced that this question here, should we get a divorce in order for ourselves to serve him? So if we go back to that context, okay, I, uh, I need to, if I'm married to somebody who's not a Christian, should I get a divorce, get away from him? Here it is. Um, I'm married to a Christian, but I can do more as a, as a single person, so shouldn't I just get rid of this other person and get a, a divorce? And so the answer is uh, no. Yeah, good. You guys are doing well. It is never God's will for Christians to divorce or separate from each other in order to be free to serve Him more effectively. So that aside, what I want us to see here is that Paul is reinforcing in this argument the principle of marriage, a command that Jesus had already addressed, namely that the word divorce should be very, very, very hard for us to find in our Christian language. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 19. He said, he's answering a question about marriage. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God is joined together, let no man separate. And so what Jesus does is he reaches all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Adam and Eve. And somebody put it this way. Jesus affirmed that from the very beginning of the human race, God designed marriage to be a committed, and it's the word joined in our verse, monogamous to his wife, which is singular, heterosexual, male, and female union that lasts for as long as they both shall live. Remember the verse, let no man separate. And so Paul here is communicating, he's reiterating this, this standard by categorically saying this, a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, you might be thinking, but didn't Jesus permit divorce when a husband or wife commits adultery. And you know you've read that somewhere in the Bible. That's in Matthew chapter 5. And um, we don't have uh, time today to walk into all the parts and, of the divorce issue itself. I just want to kind of move into one area here. A few things that I want to say ab about that. Of all the arguments, uh, exceptions, or whatever it may be that we may uh, possibly find which are very few and limited, and depending on where your theology is. Of all that, nowhere do we find that Jesus commanded divorce. Every part we find language dealing with divorce, it is not commanded. It's not even really approved. 
Uh, we know that God simply doesn't like it. Matter of fact, he even uses the word hate. I hate divorce. God simply places an enormous high value on marriage. And because he is in the redemptive business, then he doesn't want any marriage, if at all possible, to disintegrate. He wants it to be redeemed. He wants marriages that are in trouble uh, to, be, uh, to be helped and encouraged to meet together. Now, we know divorce happens, doesn't it? Divorce happens in the church. Divorce happens outside of the church. And if it does, one of the things, gang, here as the body of Christ, um, we need to be the redemptive community that comes alongside of those that uh, are hurting and, and walking through this tough scenario and situation. Us here at Linworth, the elders, we're going to do everything we can to teach you what God's Word says about this issue. We're going to do everything we can uh, to help you uh, help redeem that marriage if it is at all possible. Because it's not God's first choice. And so we need to be a place, that, a welcoming place that puts our arms in Christ with people and holds their hands and helps and works with them in this healing process if it indeed means that there is a divorce. And I understand there may be some of you here that may be walking in that arena right now or it's happened five, ten years ago and you've, you just haven't been able to completely work through that and I just want to let you know that we're here for you and, um, and you can get a, a, a hold of us and uh, we'd love to sit down and talk and pray with you um, through it. Okay, but maybe we can see this because uh, uh, in Ephesians 5 where Paul argues that the deepest meaning of marriage and indeed of the sexual union is to signify another marriage. And what's that other marriage we see in Ephesians 5? Ephesians 5 is an area that often is said in marriages and it talks about the marriage and what the husband's supposed to do and what the wife is supposed to do. But it signifies another marriage and what it points to in, in, in verse 32, Christ's marriage to his church. Us, we are the body of Christ. And so a, our marriages are a picture and a reflection of God's glory, of what that looks like, of that marriage. And so he relates to us in that. In Ephesians 5, we learn that every marriage from Adam and Eve up until this point exists to give us a life, like a living life parable of Christ's covenant love for his, his people. And that's why he wants to protect it. That's why it's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. That's why he brought... Um, and as we'll see in just a second, sex into the marriage, which becomes a, a, such a bigger thing, two people becoming one. So in other words, the purpose of marriage is to glorify Christ, to shine a light on his redemptive love for his people, the church. And that's you and that's me. And it is only within this framework that we really can understand the ultimate meaning of the marital act, the marriage and becoming one. The glory of the marital act is in the gospel union that it signifies. The picture in the marriage of us, the church, the body of Christ, being completely redeemed and made perfect, washed clean, as white as snow, by the sacrifice that Jesus did on the cross. And maybe you've never thought of it that way. Maybe you've never thought of it that way. Um, all the other purposes for procreation, for pleasure, um, for protection, okay? These are all subordinate to the ultimate end of glorifying God. So we can see that, that, that sex is important to God in the marriage relationship. And it's just, you know, it's not just the act. Um, as uh, um, Nick talked about last week, it's not a technique, the depth of it, the meaning of it, is so much larger, so much more beautiful, so much more wonderful, so much more amazing in a marriage relationship. Okay. Next, Paul addresses and talks about those people who were married, okay, when they converted to Christianity. And so now there's a question that comes up here, whether they are required, once again, to divorce their unbelieving spouse. So, um, they're there, 
they hear the message, they get saved. Uh, they're married, they get saved. Their husband or wife doesn't get saved. So in order for me to be holy and right, I need to get rid of this guy or gal because that's a distraction and they're going to pull me down, they're going to tear me down, and I'm not going to be able to worship the Lord. And so he has a question here. So in verse 12 through 16, um, you know, once again, remember this context. Again, they're trying to be, figure out the best way to be the best disciples, to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and do the right thing the right way. And so Paul addresses it. And I'm going to read 12 through 16 in the NLT, New Living Translation, because it's a little tricky in there. And the NLT just gives us a little bit better, um, easier way to understand what he's saying. Verse 12, Now I will speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. And some of you might say, well, then this isn't really God's Scripture, right? Well, no. 2 Timothy 3.16, right, is what? Does anybody know that verse? All Scripture is inspired or God-breathed and profitable for teaching, correction, and training in righteousness as it goes on. And so all of God's Word that we find in the Bible is His Word. Before He related and He talked about something that Jesus had already talked about. Now, this is something that Jesus hadn't talked about. Um, so he's not quoting Jesus, but he's still bringing uh, God's word to us. If a Christian man has a wife who is an unbeliever and she is willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a Christian woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the Christian wife brings holiness to her marriage and the Christian husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not have a godly influence, but now they are set apart for him. Verse 15, but if the husband or wife who isn't a Christian insists on leaving, let him go. And in such cases, the Christian husband or wife is not required to stay with them, for God wants his children to live in peace. You wives must remember that your husbands might be converted because of you. And you husbands must remember that your wives might be converted because of you. And so advice number four here, uh, advice to Christians married to non-Christians is stay together if the non-Christian is willing. Now, you know, this can be, this can be uh, a very interesting uh, situation. Um, you can be, uh, well, back in San Diego, we had a few couples in our church, and, uh, and one was a Christian and, and one wasn't. And we kind of walked with them and watched them and, 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 and counseled with them through, this, through, you know, 13, 14 years of this couple, of one being married to a, a non-believer. And, and it was tough because they, you know, in this case, in both these cases, the wives were, um, were married. Every Sunday, she would come to church or she would go to a Bible study. And you'd very rarely see the husband. And so in the most intimate details of her life, the most precious thing to her, she really couldn't share with her husband for, for their entire married life. And so there's a broken heart within that, a longing to be close in a, in a way that is way beyond just knowing each other and being married to one another. And uh, ultimately, I'm not 100% sure about number two, but the, this number one marriage I'm talking about, um, a scenario happened in his life, which often happens as God is dealing and working with you, and um, he became a believer. Her faithfulness, her praying, her love for him. He was a neat guy. He was a wonderful guy. And so he became a believer, and then, and then now all of a sudden they're going to church together and they're praying together. And her whole level of love for him just elevate because now they have a special connection and closeness um, because you believe her. But if she would have said, and, and as the, the Corinth church, if Paul said, no, get rid of him, who knows if he would have ever come to the Lord. But Paul say, no, you, if he's willing to live, if she's willing to live with you, you stay there, you don't know uh, if they're going to come to the Lord. You're bringing holiness, you're bringing the light, you're bringing wonder, you're bringing the truth, uh, however you do it. Uh, faithfully, sometimes very quietly, with the way you serve uh, your husband. We find out in another section of the Bible it talks about how, um, how we uh, treat each other with somebody who is not in a marriage who is not a Christian. But because of that, we see him as a strong believer in the Lord now. So, 
You could see how somebody who became a Christian after they were already married, and they might be thinking, man, it's not a Christian. It's going to limit me. I'm not going to be able to be a special, you know, super Christian for the Lord because I got this anchor around me here. Well, um, and they may feel like their life is going the wrong direction. But Paul says, you know what? You do not abandon that. Nope. Paul says no. If the non-Christian is willing to stay in the marriage with you, then you have been given an important role of bringing holiness into your marriage and your family. That's your job now. That is where you are. We'll see that also in verse 17. That is where you are. As the only Christian in the family, you have been given the opportunity to demonstrate God's love, God's acceptance, God's forgiveness, how special he is of Christ to your spouse if you're in that situation. And maybe even get the opportunity to lead them to receiving Christ as their Savior. Uh, So don't leave your non-Christian spouse in order to be a better Christian. That is relevant today as it is way back then, a couple thousand years ago, because it does happen. So if you're single here, this is not a license for missionary dating. Okay? Everybody understand what missionary dating is? Okay? You find somebody, and you're enamored with them, him or her, and they're kind of cute, and this is probably especially more for you, the youngers, or even, actually even beyond us, and you just want to have somebody in your life, and you want to get married, and so they become your project. You are now the missionary, and you're going to get them saved so that you can be together and and get married. Um, Can I tell you that most of the time, most of the time it doesn't work out, and it's a sad, sad, long, lonely marriage. Does it work out sometimes? Of course it does. Of course it does. But ultimately, it's a very difficult road to go. Okay, so you guys got that. Um, Once again, I I, want to make sure, and I do understand and realize that some of these topics and some of the things we're talking about might be hitting some some scabs and and opening some wounds and some nerves and... and, um, but God is, is in the business of restoration and healing. And we'll just make sure we give you an opportunity to, to speak with any of us after the service if that's the case for you. Um, okay, the other bit of advice that Paul gives to those who are married to unbelievers is this. If the non-Christian leaves, let him go. In other words, if the person really wants out and you know, you're doing everything you can to be Christ in their life, and, and on your end of things, as far as you're concerned, you're trying to be at peace with this other person. And in fact, that person leaves you, you are freed from your commitment to that marriage um, as well. Verse 15, God wants his children to live in peace. In the name of peace for your family, Paul instructs to allow that person um, out of that marriage. All right, let's transition here. We're going to finish up here, okay? Uh, Nick and his band, all 16 members, want to come up here? Verse 17, I mentioned verse 17 a few different times here. Um, This is really key to all of this because it speaks to every area that we just touched on of all the questions that the Corinthians were asking. It says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So, number five, our final advice statement. Advice to everyone. Accept your situation and serve the Lord where you are at this moment, at this time, and in this season. Do things change? Well, obviously, yes, they do change. But you are at a place right now, and if you can't wait to get out of high school, if you can't wait to get your college degree, and you can't wait to get a job, you can't wait to get married, you can't wait to get away from the job that you already have, or you can't, uh, that, you know, you want to move out of your neighborhood because you, um, because your neighbors, uh, they have a stinky lawn, whatever it is, I don't know. Um, God says, no, no, no. If you're always looking this way, you're missing the things that God has for us. God has people every day that pass through our lives in the station of life that we're in and where we're at, where he wants us to be a light and talk and share. So where you are right now, and it may be a tough situation that you're in, that's still where God has you. It may be a really cool situation, that's still where God has you. He wants you to work within the confines and the parameters that he has put you in at this time. So, accept your situation and serve um, the Lord there. In verse uh, uh, 18, 19, and on there, Paul uses uh, the first uh, a couple of examples. He uses circumcision as an example. And, but we can just use 
any word and insert it there. Uh, it makes no difference whether a person is single. Um, so in, insert them, you know, are you circumcised? Should I get uncircumcised? If you're uncircumcised, should I get circumcised? So that's kind of the context of it. But you could put any word in there. It makes no difference whether or not a person is single, whether a person is married, um, whether a person is divorced, whether you're really happily employed, whether you're not happily employed, whether you're not employed at all, whether you're healthy, whether you're sick, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, okay? The important thing is to keep God's commands right where you are in the situation that you find yourself. Live as and where you are called. Amen? So God may have some changes for you in the future, but in every place, in every station of life that you're in, there's an opportunity. There is an opportunity to be a light, no matter how hard or difficult that situation is. The only question is, is whether you're going to snuff that light out or whether you're going to actually be the light in that situation. We all have the Holy Spirit in us. We all are ambassadors for Christ. We are all called to the mission, and we get to do this. Somebody did this in their life, and you came to Jesus because of it. Let's do the same for others. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for um, your word. Lord, thank you for the, um, the church in Corinth. Lord, just, um, Lord, they're a blessing to us here 2,000 years. They walked through so many tough and just weird situations and times, and they had to suffer through those things and learn through those things. And because of them, um, we get to learn um, how to walk through very similar situations. Through them, we get to been able to learn what a healthy and right and beautiful view of sex which you've created is. Uh, through them, we understand that you are in the redeeming business, that your goal is to redeem all of mankind. And you set your son, Jesus Christ, for that purpose, to die for our sins that we might be redeemed, that we might be made new again, that we might be able to live with you forever in all of eternity. Thank you for your words, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.